Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. I want you to hear this. Jesus desires a relationship with you. He desires a relationship with you. And what we're going to be reading about today is all about the steps that Jesus took to make sure that he could enter into a pure relationship with you, his bride. And it blows my mind when I look in the mirror and I know who I am and I know my heart of hearts. And maybe you feel the same way. You know who you are deep down inside and it blows your mind to think of the fact that God, Jesus, would desire that kind of a relationship with you, but he does. And he went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that he could establish that relationship with each and every one of you. So let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 19. We're going to look at the first four verses. It says this, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Say that with me. Say hallelujah! hallelujah. There it is. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged that great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, hallelujah, say hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, and they worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, amen. Hallelujah. Now check this out. We're going to begin here by looking at this text and looking at this outburst of worship in heaven. All of heaven just bursts forth with this praise because they've seen what has happened over the course of the last dozen chapters or so. And it's all coming to this point, to this pinnacle, to this crescendo of the song. And in chapter 17 and 18, we see the harlot and Babylon judged, right? And the world is mourning because their meal ticket is gone. Their heart is breaking. They don't know what they're going to do. The world mourns. But in heaven, when that harlot is judged and when Babylon is judged, it breaks forth into song. And all they can do is praise the Lord. Now, that word hallelujah is the, is the Greek translation of hallelujah, which is two words put together, a compound word, hallel, which means to praise, and the word Yah, or a short for Yahweh, which is God. Praise God is what they're saying. Praise God, praise God. And all of heaven joins in this song, praising God, because God has just judged the world, but he's also about to do something amazing. And that's what they're anticipating. They're anticipating this crescendo, this pinnacle happening that we're going to be able to read about this morning. Now, it says there that they praise him, and, and they praise him because of his worth. Did you notice that? Listen to this once again. It says there that all of heaven, this multitude joins. They say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord God. Because of his great worth, they are praising him. First off, because it's God who brings salvation. How many of you should be praising God because of the salvation he's brought you? Amen? He's worthy to be praised if for no other reason than he dug you up out of the pit you had dug yourself into, and he set your feet upon a rock, he washed you clean of your sins, he set you free from the bondage that you were in, and now you have the ability to live and to worship him freely. 
That is the salvation he brings. And that's reason to praise God. Now, here's the thing with our salvation. The only way that you can be saved is when you first understand your need for a Savior. Jesus put it this way in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. He says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. If you want to be saved, you have to recognize you're a sinner. You have to realize that apart from God's grace, you have no hope. You have to look yourself in that mirror and you have to say, I need Jesus. And the moment you do that, Jesus will come into your heart and he'll save you. Now, here's the thing, my friends, is you have to be honest with yourselves. I posted a post on Facebook this last week, and I think maybe someone here this morning needs to hear it. Because too many people treat Jesus like a medication. And when your life is out of order, when your life is in ruins, when you're struggling with addiction, when you're struggling in your marriage, when your children are being led astray, when you're struggling financially, all of a sudden you want to come to Jesus and you want him to address that issue in your life. Well, he's not a medication. He's not something that you grab when you need. He's the cure. He comes in and he cleans everything up. You have to understand, if you want to be saved, you have to recognize that you're a sinner in need of a savior. You have to recognize you're sick and need the physician. You have to recognize that you're not righteous, but that you've fallen and you need a savior to pick you up. We need to praise God because he's offered to us salvation. Now, the scripture says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus. And if you want to be saved, you have to call upon the name of Jesus. And the scripture says in Romans chapter 10 that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that you shall be saved. But you have to call upon that name. You have to say, Lord, I need you. And this is reason to praise. This is the reason why all of heaven bursts forth and pours out their worship because they're standing on the side of salvation and they're looking and they're going to watch a world be judged for their sin and they're standing righteous in the presence of Jesus. And so they praise the Lord because of his great worth. Aside from the fact, as the scripture says, that glory and honor and power also belong to the Lord. Glory, that all of our attention, it should be given to the Lord. Honor, that we should revere him, that we should look at him and treat him delicately. And that all power, that he is the only one that we can say that there's nothing impossible with God. How much more power do you need? What more do you need? And this is reason to praise. And so they break forth in this praise of God because of his great worth. But they also break forth in praise because they see his justice coming forth. His justice is going to be unleashed on an unbelieving world and they're praising God for it. Did you see that? Verse 2, it says, For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged or brought retribution on her blood of his servant shed by her. Now listen to this. This text says there that God is going to bring judgment. The great harlot is being judged. The world system, not only the economy, but the world's religion, all of it is being judged in this moment. And this chorus from heaven breaks forth in praise because this judgment is coming down. My friends, look at the world around us and tell me, tell me that we don't need to be judged. Look at our own political system today and the people that we are about to elect, and it's an indictment against our culture. 
Listen carefully to me. Democracy only works when the democracy has the proper moral compass, and our culture does not have the proper moral compass. We are not fit to make a decision for someone to lead us, not the way we're living today. This world system is about to be judged, and it needs to be judged, does it not? Now, listen, there's something called humanism, and humanism states that the chief end of man is the pleasure of man. It's opposed, diabolically opposed to Christianity, because Christianity says that the chief end of man is the glory of God. That your purpose for living and breathing is to bring God glory and to bring God pleasure, not to bring yourself glory or yourself pleasure. But we have it all twisted. This is what the scripture says. And pastor quoted this verse last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to this. It says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will become lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of what is good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's where we're at today. We would rather have someone bring financial prosperity to our country than someone who will follow after the righteousness of God. This is where we're at as a culture. And if you are making decisions about who you're voting for based upon your pocketbook, God will judge you just like he judges the world system in Revelation. There is no other choice. There's no other option. God has to judge sin and unrighteousness because he is holy. And he cannot allow sin in his presence. So if you want to be in his presence, you have to be washed clean. You have to call upon the name of Jesus. Now, notice here it says this. It says in verse 3 that the smoke of this judgment, that it rises up forever and ever. And you have to understand that if you're living for the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of this world, the love of man, the love of money, the love of pleasure, you will have absolutely nothing to show for it when you stand in the presence of God. The scripture says that everything in this life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is passing away. It is decaying. It is dying. And if that's what you're banking on, if that's where your security lies in your bank account, in your 401k, and whatever it is that you're collecting, if that is what brings you satisfaction and security, you will be completely devoid of anything of worth when you stand in the presence of God one day. The scripture says this, Jesus said this. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moths destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Are you living for here or are you living for eternity? Are you living for the flesh and the pleasure of life or are you living for the eternal life to come? What is your outlook? What is your hope? What are you waiting and placing your hope for or your hope in? You have to make this decision now. Now, this verse 4 says that the 24 elders, and we know the 24 elders, 12 from the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, and the 12 apostles. So this is everyone who has been saved, everyone who lived with the hope of the Messiah coming, and the four living creatures who represent all of the angelic hosts, the armies of heaven, they all join in this song together. So you have all of creation 
praising the Lord, praising God because of his great worth and because of his judgments. All of this book, the last 18 chapters, has been building up and building up and building up to this moment where Jesus is going to return with his bride and judge the world, and all of creation breaks forth in chorus of song saying, praise God, praise the Lord, the day has come. Now look here and see what we see. We see, secondly in this text, the great wedding feast. The great wedding feast. Read with me, beginning in verse 5. It says, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, all those who fear him, both small and great. Notice there's distinctions in heaven. Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Now pause there just for a moment. Why, if the Lord has raptured the church at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4, are we just now being able to witness the marriage supper of the Lamb? Why is it that it's barely happening at this point and it hasn't happened sooner? When you take into account an understanding of the Jewish culture, specifically how their weddings happened, it all comes into a much more clear picture. So we're going to look at that just for a moment. But before we do, understand that all throughout the scriptures, this is a picture that God has used over and over and over again. That this marriage is a picture, the wedding is a picture of what happens in heaven. Hosea, listen to this. Hosea was a prophet called by God to marry a prostitute as an object lesson for the children of Israel of how God grieves when his people are led astray by idolatry. Let that sink in just for a second. You think you have it tough. You think God's call on your life to preach the truth is tough? Try being Hosea, whom God says, you're going to marry a prostitute because I want to make a point. And he does so. He marries the prostitute so that this picture can be painted of how God's heart is grieved when his bride, at this point Israel, is led astray into idolatry. Read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 tonight. And read how Paul uses this picture of a marriage to adequately portray the relationship that Jesus has with the bride of Christ, the church. This is a picture that is used over and over throughout the scriptures. Now, here we have a divine outline in Revelation, and it's found in Revelation chapter 119. Remember this. It says, write these things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place here after this. The things that you have seen is an account of Revelation chapter 1, this amazing picture that John has of Jesus. Write the things that you have seen. The things which are is Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which is the church age, church history. Beginning in Revelation chapter 4, now all the way through Revelation chapter 18 is an account of the great tribulation, the tribulation, when God pours out his wrath on the earth. But now in Revelation chapter 19, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, this incredible great wedding feast, which is a picture 
of what God wants to do with his people. Now listen to how this would unfold for a Hebrew man wanting to find a bride. Because it doesn't work like you and I do. In our culture, we have the ability to choose whom we want to marry. But in the Hebrew culture, the father always made arrangements for his son, who his son would marry. And he would find a bride for him that was of the same social status, the same kind of ideals, the same moral compass. They would have to be compatible. They considered it too big of a decision to allow a young man to choose for himself whom his bride would be. So there would be this engagement process that would happen, but this engagement process wasn't the choice of the young man. It was the choice of the father, and it would happen oftentimes when the child was still a baby. Now, this is a perfect portrayal of what God does with his people, how God chooses a bride for his son, Jesus. The scripture says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says that, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chooses us. God chooses those who are in Christ as a bride for his son. God does the choosing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that we have been elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That God the Father elects for his son, chooses for his son a bride. Now, after a few years, as the children would grow, they would go from the engagement to the actual betrothal period. And this would happen sometime when the, the young woman was like just coming in her, into her teenage years. And for the very first time, imagine this, for the very first time, the young woman and the young man would meet. And they would come together, and there was a lot that would have to take place for this betrothal period to begin. The first thing that had to happen is there had to be a price that was agreed to, a price that would be paid. The father of the groom would have to compensate the father of the bride for allowing the bride to leave the home. A price had to be adjusted. A price had to be negotiated and decided upon. And this price had to demonstrate a desire and also demonstrate sacrifice that this was costing the family that was taking this bride as their own. It would have to cost them something. Now, this price was always determined first off, and if you want to write these things down, write these down. They're not going to be on your screen. It had to be determined by the Father's wealth. So as we're thinking about this, how could God possibly show how much worth the bride has? What could, what could God the Father actually give that would communicate some sort of desire and some sort of sacrifice? The answer is his son. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God the Father wanted to communicate his desire for a bride for his son, wanted to communicate that he was willing to sacrifice to take this bride, and so he gives the thing that he values the most, he gives his only begotten son as a payment for the bride, as a ransom, as a propitiation for the sins of that bride, he gives his only son. The scripture also says this in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. What price was the father willing to pay? According to the father's wealth, he says, this is all I can give that will communicate my desire and my willingness to sacrifice. I give my son for you. I give my son for the bride. Let that sink in. You are the bride. 
He wanted to show you how much you meant to him. So he gave his son in your place so that you could understand love. It doesn't matter how your husband or your spouse, your wife treats you. You have a worth that is greater than that. It doesn't matter how your boss or your coworkers treat you. You have a worth that is greater than that. And God demonstrated that love to you. He proved it by praying this mohar in the Hebrew. He paid this price. Now, first off, it would be determined by the father's wealth. But secondly, if the family didn't have enough money, it could be determined by the groom's work. And check this out because we see this happening throughout the scriptures. Jacob had an eye for a woman named named Rachel, and he wanted to marry her so badly. So he said, I'll work. What's the price, the dad says? You have to work for seven years. Seven years? Seven years? I have to work for seven years for her? But he does it. And on the wedding day, the father tricks Jacob, and he ends up with the sister Leah first. Does I still really want to marry her? What can I do? Well, I guess if you work seven more years, you can have her. 14 years he works to gain her hand in marriage. The groom's work. In the book of Joshua, chapter 15, you can read it later, a man named Othiniel responds to the call that Joshua says, I want you to go and I need you to take the land in Anak, where there's giants, and whoever takes this city, I'm going to give him my daughter as his bride. And so he goes and he fights against giants and conquers this city, and he ends up with his daughter. Amazing things. Remember the story of Saul and David? What's the reward? Do you remember the reward for whoever could slay that giant Goliath? Well, he would get riches, he would be exempt from taxes, and he would get Saul's daughter. Now, here's the thing. In those texts, you had to work for the bride, or you had to go to war for the bride. Jesus did both. Jesus went to work for you. He left his throne in heaven, and he came and walked this earth for 33 years in human flesh so that you could see that he was willing to work for you. He went to war for you. Do you think that there wasn't a war going on in the Garden of Gethsemane and upon the cross as he's struggling? Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to have to endure this wrath, but I will if this is the only way that I can take the bride's hand. He goes to work and he goes to war for each and every one of you. And so finally, you have the father's wealth, you have the groom's work, but that's not it. You also have the bride's worth. And this is where you might want to say, well, hold on just a second. This is where this whole picture breaks down for me because I don't view myself as very worthy of God's love. In the Eastern culture, there's this story where it's common that marriages are arranged. And the story is about a young girl. And she was not a very beautiful girl. She was actually very plain. And the father was worried that there would never be a suitor for her hand, never be someone that would come along and that would ask this young girl to be a bride one day. And so he struggles with this throughout his life, worrying and worrying. There's never going to be someone who will come and will take my daughter as a bride. But one day a man comes into town and the young girl has grown and she's still kind of plain looking, but she catches the eye of this very wealthy man. And so word spreads that this man has a desire for this young woman as his bride. 
And so the father's excited. He's thinking, finally, someone is going to take my daughter and take her as his bride. And he's excited, saying, I wonder what he's going to offer. And he's just hoping for anything. And the man approaches, and he says, what I have to offer you for your daughter is six cows. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.